Oh, well, half measures ought to value half of something, right? They should, right? Well, I think. Never did. I'll raise my hand on yeah. that one. I never did, though. It's only problem. <laughs> you got to start somewhere. Okay, it's on the record. My name's David Lacer, and I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date's May 31st, 2017, which is also my birthday. So uh, I had to narrow it down to one day that I could remember because I can't really remember two. My buddy of mine, Savannah B., she opens her, me her speaker talks like this, and so I picked this up from her, which most everything I do in here, I picked up from somebody else. So if you don't like it, you can blame somebody else. <laughs> Practical, this is from chapter seven, working with others. Practical experience shows that nothing will so much as ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. It works when other activities fail. This is our 12th suggestion. Carry this message to other alcoholics. You can help when no one else can. You can secure their confidence when others fail. Remember, they are very ill, like me. Life will take on a new meaning, to watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see fellowship grow about you, 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 to have a host of friends. This is an experience you must not miss. We know you will not want to miss it. Frequent contact with newcomers and with other alcoholics is the bright spot of our life. So that's, I found that to be true for me. Uh, um, when I came back to um, AA, uh, in, t in 2017, my sponsor, when I met with Jack early on, he said, well, why do you think you relapsed? Because I had some long-term sobriety in the past. And, uh, you know, I said, well, I quit going to meetings, you know, I quit working steps and so forth and so on. And he said, the reason you relapsed because you didn't sponsor anybody. And uh, ever since that point, he was just preparing me. Just every Whenever we would work through the steps, he would say, when he was having me do something he said you this is the way you'll do it when you sponsor somebody you'll say this and you'll do this and this is just do it like this and so uh it has been a game changer for me i sponsor a lot of guys probably the one thing that i do that is against my sponsor's orders i sponsor more people than he wants me to sponsor <laughs> at one time but uh, i have a lot of trouble saying no he's great to remind me that i'm a people pleaser and that's a character defect that i have but it has been just the bright spot of my life is to be able to work with other guys. And I try to do the same thing that he did with me. I just prepare them to sponsor other people. Because the way I look at this now is I get sober so I can give away what I have. Because this is a disease that is obviously a lot of people never get a chance to get in the rooms. And so if they do, our message, it says in the book, has depth and weight. I was talking to a sponsee just this morning about that because it's not me prescribing something to them. It's I'm saying, I took this prescription, I took this treatment, and I was like you, and now I don't have to do the things that we've had to do, and I don't have to feel the way you have to feel anymore. So um, uh, the last time I told my story at Cosmo, and I want to thank Carl. Carl goes with me on a lot of my talks, and I really appreciate you being here, Carl. Um, he's heard my story a lot, so he keeps me honest. Um, the last time I told my story up here, I was just a little over a year sober, so it was June of 2017, Spencer asked me to tell my story. And, uh, I mean, I was maybe a week over one year, so I qualified. And so I told my story, and uh, some uh, a friend that's in the program who remained nameless, but her name's Kelly E., she came up to me after and said she appreciated the talk and just was really touched by what was said. And, uh, I, you know, I was, thank you. And then the next week I was chairing a meeting and she came up to me after the meeting. She said, would you like to do, she didn't even know what I did for a living or nothing. I happened to be working for Trooper Mike's group, telemarketing and raising money for the State Police Association at the time. I was barely making enough money, but was making enough money to pay my rent and pay my phone bill and pick up a few snacks along the way and go out to eat a little bit. So uh, I was, you know, just make, just had enough. And that's really what I needed. If I'd had too much money in my pocket or too much freedom, I probably would have been F to the left. So. Um, Anyway, she came up to me the next week. She said, would you like to do something different than what you're doing, you know, for work? And I'm like, yeah, right, sure, whatever. And she didn't really tell me what she was thinking about. 
she just told me what she had been doing for work in the past and that she might have somebody she wanted to connect me with and so forth. And it took a few weeks, maybe a month or so, when she'd come up, I hadn't forgot about you. I said, well, I'm not worried about it. I mean, I'm not looking for anything. And then she sent me a text and she said, I want you to email this guy, don't be shy, and just let him know that I, he knows you're going to get a hold of him. And I looked at the name, and the guy's name uh, that she referred me to, he's not in the program, so I can say his name. His name's Kevin Murphy. And Kevin Murphy was the deputy director of Arkansas Department of Community Corrections, and I am a property of the state at this very moment right now. So that was basically the owner, the co-owner, the second to the owner of me. And, uh, and I looked and I said, Kevin Murphy, I, I was in, in my first round of sobriety, I got an MBA. Uh, I was probably eight years sober, I guess. I got an executive MBA. It was the very inaugural executive MBA program in the state of Arkansas. There wasn't one at U of A. It was the first one at UALR. And one of my, so you had to have a job. You had to be in management. You had to have five years management experience and all that. So I was in there with people that own McDonald's. That guy's actually a U.S. representative for Oklahoma now. I was with the, uh, uh, the head of anesthesiology at Children's Hospital was in there, uh, people that worked for the state, and Kevin Murphy was in there too. So I'm like, I know this guy. So I text him or emailed him, and then he gets back with me. He says, oh, yeah, we'd taken a trip to Mexico as part of the trip and everything. So we reminisced a little bit. He said, well, let's get together and we'll just go out to eat. And I said, well, it'd be nice if we could go to this Mexico Chiquito down here because that's right next to my work and I really don't have a car. And so uh, he met me over there one day, a few couple, it took a month or so for us to get together. And then he said, look, uh, when I got, I'd retired from Arkansas Department of Corrections and when they got me to come back and work for Arkansas Community Corrections, I said, I don't want to just push paper, I want to help people. And he said, I've looked at your resume that you sent me, and I looked at your other resume, and that'd be your rap, my rap sheet. And he looked at me, and he said, you're one of the people that I want to help. And uh, he made a phone call, and it took another few weeks. And uh, I was riding the bus home from work one day, and I got a call from a woman from Fort Smith who happened to be the CEO for a company called Harbor House. And she interviewed me right on the bus as I was going riding on. I'm like, I didn't like people talking on the bus on their phone. I thought it was kind of rude, so I'm just trying to be kind of quiet. And then about three weeks later, she emailed me and asked if she could have another conference call, uh, call with me. And I talked to her, and she offered me a job. And so uh, I work in the treatment center field. I'm a drug and alcohol counselor. I never applied for the job, and it all started right here. And I get to be in a helping profession. But that is not 12-step work, okay? I get paid for that. And uh, though I love being able to help people for a living most of the time, um, uh, I still have a lot of energy that I like to focus in here because I just enjoy it, if nothing else. So I was born in Fayetteville, Arkansas. I'm 56 years old, so I was born in 1963 on May 31st. And uh, the early days of my life were spent around my grandparents' house. My grandparents uh, lived in an area called Whiskey Flats. Uh, there was a lot of drinking going on in there. So the, really the table has always been set. If you read, you know, kind of good, rich novels and good book, good literature, you always see a lot of foreshadowing. And as I uh, have looked back on the, my life, there's a lot of foreshadowing that I was going to end up here. So um, anyway... Uh, my, I, I come by my alcoholism very honestly. My, uh, grand, my uh, maternal grandmother is an alcoholic, or was. She didn't drink the last few years. She just got really into art and things like that. Uh, my, my maternal grandfather is an alcoholic, and he abandoned my mom when she was like four or five years old. Uh, my mom has three brother, three sisters. No three brothers and one sister, all of them are alcoholics. One of them is dead from the disease. Two of them have been Alcoholics Anonymous and have many years of, of sobriety. And my mom's the lone outlier. She gets to drink recreationally. So um, all my, my family was, they, that side of the family, they were a little more outlaws. They're uh, cattle people and 
uh, old days of Fayetteville, it was, uh, my memories were just of old crow signs everywhere. There's a lot of drinking up there. And I grew up in a dry county in Jonesboro, so I wasn't used to seeing liquor stores all the time. And so I remember whenever we'd go there that liquor really did kind of was a constant factor around there. They were always playing cards and doing things like that. And so I grew up around uh, liquor in that regard. Um, and they were spiritual people, just not religious people. My dad's side of the family, my dad's, the first lacer that came to the United States was a Jewish rabbi. He came in the mid-1800s. His name was Abraham Lacer. He moved to Mobile, Arkansas. And when we have this pandemic, they actually had a yellow fever epidemic. And uh, he actually died serving the community. And that whole side of my family, my grandparents are, were very religious. They actually went to two churches. Uh, they were Methodist and Presbyterian. Uh, my first three uncles and aunts were Methodist, and then the last two, my grandfather got them, and they were Presbyterian, so my dad's a Presbyterian, or was. And um, anyway, they, that side of my family is devoted to they lo loving God and service to the community. I mean, after my grandfather died, a few years after that, they actually in Forest City, Arkansas, had an Esther Lacer Day where they had a parade and they shut down city offices and all that just to honor the contribution that they made to the community. So um, my outlying activities really didn't fall into line with that, but my dad is also an alcoholic in recovery. I have an uncle that's dead now, but he was an alcoholic too. That He actually went over to Serenity Park. So all of that to show that that is probably has something to do with me being an alcoholic because it's in my genes, but growing up, I just really felt uncomfortable in my own skin. I mean, it wasn't like, um, I was just real nervous, you know what I'm saying? Uh, if I had a real a group of people that I knew pretty well and I felt real comfortable with, then I'd let my hair down a little bit. Uh, I was voted the wittiest in my high school, but I usually had a wingman and I would just sit there and shoot out kind of barbs out there to, you know, to te teachers and various people in the school and all that stuff. But I was terrified of girls, and I still am, and it's a healthy fear. Um, so uh, I was just real shy uh, when I was growing up, and I remember like when I was like 12 years old, I was remember being waking up at like one in the morning and laying in my bed and being so riddled with anxiety because there was some think project that I hadn't really started on or wasn't working on and I was just terrified and just totally eat up with anxiety and that was kind of a constant for me uh, as I was growing up when I was 16 I had my first drink we always had a Christmas party at my house uh, on Christmas Eve and they were serving champagne and I don't know what led me to do this but I decided I was gonna have me a drink of champagne and I have been an alcoholic since the very first drink. I don't remember much about that night, but I do remember that when I got one, I wanted more, and I wanted more, and I wanted more, and I wanted more. I remember that I really got comfortable in my own skin to the point that I really was able to step out and be myself probably in a very exaggerated way. And when I woke up the next day, I had a a champagne hangover and that never changed those are terrible and I also remember being really embarrassed because uh, not that I could remember that I did anything specifically outrageous which years to come I would but just my parents were grieving me and giving me a hard time and boy you were feeling no pain last night and I was just like oh my god I because my whole life growing up in a home with an alcoholic practicing alcoholic I started judging. I'm always taking the temperature of the audience. I'm always trying to match you. I'm going to try to say and do things I think you want me to do and say the things I think you want to hear. And if I feel like I can't really get to that place, then I'll just go in my room and shut the door. And uh, so it, my, there was a lot of volatility. My dad was a very... Uh, He's a was very functional alcoholic, extremely functional. He always went to work, and he always paid the bills, but he got mad a lot. And it uh, uh, wasn't physical violence, but just loud. And so, um, so knowing that I wasn't gauging my audience and I wasn't meeting what I thought you thought I should do or say was really uh, hard for me to take at a really deep level. And... Uh, 
uh, we went, I went through the day, I got through my hangover, and I don't know what happened, but I just knew I was going to do it again, I guess, because that started a habit of on the weekends, I would start drinking. And I kind of shifted friends, not to just like thug life or anything, but there was these two girls that I ran, that were in my school, and they drank a lot, and so I just started running around with them. And I started changing the way I dressed, I got real preppy and everything, and uh, it was kind of weird, you know. In retrospect, I had a crush on one of the girls. I actually followed her to Ole Miss and went to college there. She turned out to be gay. But that's just, <laughs> yeah, that's my love life, okay? That's why I have not been messing with girls. Um, so, I, and this is a kind of an important to me. When I put one in me, I stop making a mark, okay? That's just, it doesn't matter whether I'm just smoking weed, just drinking, or doing full Monty, which is the, the whole buffet of things that I like to do uh, to change the way I feel. But uh, that, I was a senior in high school when I started drinking, it was the second semester. I mean, this was my last semester in high school. And I was always such a people pleaser. I didn't do great in school. You know, I made B's and A's. Uh, I just was, if a teacher said you were supposed to have something turned in, I was gonna do it because I'm a people pleaser. And um, for some reason, in like English and stuff, I stopped turning in assignments. You know, I wasn't like I was drinking. I didn't even really know you could skip school. I was kind of naive. I mean, there was people doing that, but I just didn't really know it was a thing, you know? So I just always went to school and I always showed up. And But I just, for some reason, I was a bad procrastinator, but I just, guess I just stopped doing it. I don't even really know, but I know that when it came time to graduate, my grades had dropped so far in that semester and just a weekend drinker had dropped so far and my performance in senior English had dropped so far, I did not meet all the requirements to graduate from senior English. And you can't graduate from high school in Arkansas if you don't have senior English. But I guess my track record in the past or my history of doing what I was doing uh, paid off to the point that they went ahead and graduated me. I went to Ole Miss and it was on, y'all, okay? Uh, it was full-blown on. I had nobody that was overseeing me. I didn't have any controls anymore. I got to see all the things that you could do that you didn't have to go to class if you didn't want to. And uh, I just became a daily drinker just as soon as I got there. Uh, I actually eventually drank my way out of a fraternity at Ole Miss. That is not easy to do. Uh, <laughs> If some of the guys would go out on Tuesdays and Thursdays and Saturdays and I would go with them and the other some people would go on Monday and Wednesday and Friday and I would go with them and then we'd go to Ben's and Todd's on Sunday. And uh, I just was all about drinking. I don't really know how I got away with it. I didn't have really any money. Uh, my dad would send some amount of money, but I was a lot more. But somehow I've always been able to get by and. My friend Lisa over there can tell you I could get by with not very much money in my pocket and stay pretty messed up. Um, I kind of always have been able to stay drunk or high on my personality and my two hands have been able to steal stuff. <laughs> so um, I, by the time I was 20, I flunked out of school. I'd been, my dad had brought me home. I was getting arrested for my th third DUI, and I hadn't, DWI, and I hadn't even gotten legal age to drink yet. Uh, my parents put me in a shrink and started, you know, uh, came up here and got me on some meds. And my sister says this, I don't know if this is true or not, but she says they basically diagnosed me as gonna be low functioning the rest of my life and kind of, <laughs> always on the tit and I'm like I mean so I don't know but uh, I ended up sort of getting stabilized my parents took my car away from me I started drinking a little bit less and anyway I ended up uh, turning 21 and for whatever reason we all decided it was gonna I got in the restaurant business and I was able to make my get to work and everything and I was able to start making some money a little bit and so I came down here to Little Rock and I moved down to Little Rock when I was 21, I went to work at Bennigan's. A lot of you old-timers will know Bennigan's. And at Bennigan's, I happened to work with Doug M., who goes to this meeting, and for Martin M., who's recently started coming back to the 630 meeting. They were co-workers of mine there. And uh, I met a woman, first woman, basically, that was nice to me. And so I'm like, oh, you know, if I go out to eat with you, we're probably getting married, okay? <laughs> 
<laughs> plain and simple. I, and I stay a long time. I do not leave people. So, um, you know, I, I, I got married. I'm, I'm, well, I w got married. I was living out in the country. My wife was a, quite a bit older than me. She had kids that were as big as me and, and high, old teenagers. And uh, my parents were not real thrilled about it. And one of my sisters definitely wasn't real thrilled about me getting married. But um, anyway, uh, I started, once I got shifted to bartender over there, on Thursday night, it was 50 Cent Beer Night at Bennigan's. And 50 Cent Beer Night, that was the place to go in Little Rock, Arkansas to party. And so I was a megastar. You know, it was a little before the Tom Cruise cocktail thing, but I got it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Pretty girls and guys, everybody, and we're back behind the bar and we're raising hell. And I'm doing a lot of other outside issues at that point. I really can't afford to do that, so I'm getting very frisky with the cash register. Uh, they know somebody's robbing them, but they can't figure out who. They've got cameras everywhere. They've hired surveillance companies and so forth and so on. And somehow, some way, they just never were able to catch me. But ended up getting kicked out of the house, and I was couch surfing. And again, when I get started, when I'm really up the ante, I will become homeless. I mean, I have a history. I did that at Ole Miss. I got kicked out of the fraternity house, and I just couch surfed around, and uh, people would always put me up. And I mean, that's the grace of God right there that would always, I've always been taken care of, and I really don't know how. Um, about my wife came to me. So, and okay, and we have to make up a lot of time, but I do this every time. Um, <laughs> In May of, two, of 1987, May of 1987, my, they called me at work. My dad called me at work and said, you need to come home. He, he said, your sister is overdosed and she might not live. And uh, so we got ourselves, me and my wife got ourselves together and we went up there. And uh, it just so happens that this young man right here happened to be there when that was going down, when we just figured this out. So this is just a beautiful thing to be able to be in recovery and get to see all this and see the handiwork of, of the highest power, uh, how these things have touched my lives and these people that were touching my lives at that time, and some of them I didn't even know were touching my lives, are now again touching my lives in, another, in, a, in, in other ways. And just to see the um, perfection, really, of it all is, is unbelievable and it's humbling. Um, she lived. She had died on her table for extensive period of time. She had a powerful near-death experience. When she came back, she just asked for a pencil and paper, and she says, I'm not going anywhere. She wrote down what had happened to her. I'm not here to tell her story, but thanks to, and I'll just say, thanks to partially to Bert's recommendation primarily, she ended up going to Hazelden. And her sobriety date was August of, August something of, two, of 1987. Well, my dad went up there for a family conference, and my mom, you know, because they bring the family up there and they're doing all that stuff, and somehow, some way, they confronted him about his addiction issues. And uh, though it took him a few months to get it right, in uh, December of 1987, he got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, and he's been sober and a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, an active member ever since then. Um, so here we come to around March of 1988 and I'm couch surfing and my wife comes and says comes to the door and I'm kind of wearing out my welcome at one of my fellow bartenders houses I mean I'm really wearing out my welcome you know it's like you're not going to be able to surf on my couch no more and my wife came and she said if you will stop drinking that you can move you can move home and I'm like okay yeah okay so I'm down you know I would have agreed to anything I knew I wouldn't have a place to live pretty soon so I went home, and the very next day, somehow Martin M. met me at my first AA meeting ever, and that was March the 5th of 1988. It was at, uh, on, uh, it was on Mississippi, it was at the Episcopal Church, Faye was there, um, and he, and, uh, her husband was there, and, and Martin introduced me to a guy named Lou. And I said, I'm David Lacer. He said, my name's Lou Myers, and Lou's passed now. Though I can use his name too, but he said, Martin said, this is your sponsor. 
And so I started working with Lou. Lou started working with me and uh, from that point forward, and I started working the steps. And I got a home group, and uh, I started showing up. We'd go, my wife got in Al-Anon. We'd go down to the Joe's Step Studies on Monday night. We'd go to the Hour of Power meeting on Sunday mornings. We would, uh, uh, you know, I was in it. You know what I'm saying? I was in it. I was working the steps. I did a fourth step. I'd left out a couple of things, kind of take to the grave things, which this time Jack just got the full money, okay? Uh, it was like, you don't like it here. I'll get somebody else, okay? Because I got to get this thing right this time. I'm running out of time. Um, so, um, Things started getting better. You know what I'm saying? My life started getting better. Uh, I, I had some sponsee, I mean, some brothers, uh, sponsee brothers. Uh, we uh, did service work, you know, in our home group. Uh, uh, I was, my dad was in the program. My mom was in Al-Anon. We'd come down to Winter Holiday Convention. They would come and we'd get a hotel room and we did the whole deal. I remember when Dr. Alcoholic Addict was down here speaking, I got to meet him and hang out with him. Clancy was down here speaking, I got to meet him and hang out with him. My dad and I were just all about Chuck C, okay? And the Jack's my sponsor and I have a 19-year-old uh, backup sponsor named Avery, but my backup to the backup sponsor is Chuck C. And uh, we would listen to new pair of glasses on CD, just over oh, and tape back then, just listen to it, listen to it, listen to it, listen to it. And this was a person who had a real practical application of how to do this out here. You know what I'm saying? How to make it work, how to angle of approach to living, which works in good times and in bad times, and is something that you can work with. It's tangible. It's not just ideas up here. The deal is, well, let me say this. So we're going to get... The deal, here's the deal. This is a spiritual program, okay? This is a spiritual program, okay? This is about conscious contact with the highest power for me, okay? But, I, and out there, I'm very ungrounded, okay? I spent about four years on flying on this universe, on this plane right here, not sleeping one bit towards the end of my last run. And I never stopped chasing God. But I wasn't grounded in the fellowship, and I wasn't grounded in those steps right here. Okay, I'm going to get grandiose. I'm going to be slim shady. I'm not going to be. I'm not going to be in a meeting reminding me to be honest today. I'm not going to be at a meeting reminding me to be open-minded and willing. I'm not going to be in a meeting reminding me to be humble. I'm not going to have an opportunity to help the next man down the line. I'm going to be selfish and self-centered, self-seeking. I have to be because I'm addicted. I gotta have what I need in my body or I'm going down the tubes really quick. So um, this program allow, gives me the grounding and the footing that I can utilize in order to live practically in the world with my other people, but still have the aspirations of connecting with the highest of high powers. And uh, I'm see the way I look at it is this. There's nothing exists four seconds from now. That's what I, this is the way I look at it. Nothing exists four seconds from now. That's void. So the I look at it, my highest power didn't create, create me. My highest power is creating me and creating this moment and creating every one of you at the same time. And so if I'm not intimately tied with that, then what am I intimately tied with? Um, but I can get way off in the, in the clouds on that and start seeking a lot of, experiences which are enhanced by other alcohol and alcohol in all its forms and some of that can get me way off in left field i mean the last run i was making at this i fully believed i was the reincarnation of king david uh, people <laughs> did call me king david the second and uh that is grandiose y'all okay and not rational and it's really not very useful because we're looking for miracles all the time and we're getting real um, I was getting real uh, self-righteous and indignant uh, a lot and offended by the people that were doing, not even really doing anything, but I'm just romping around the countryside getting upset a lot. My sister, my sister said that I most reminded her of uh, Robert De Niro in Cape Fear, just to give you an idea of my personality. So, um, so... I was sober for uh, 16 years. After my very first meeting, I didn't take another drink for 16, 16 full years. 
Uh, my life got better. Um, I was involved in the program, and I can't remember, four, five, six years. Uh, but my life started getting bigger. I started having less time. I got my first, under, I got an undergraduate degree at Euler in marketing, and I got a real job. I got out of the restaurant business, and I started uh, getting busier, and it was a startup company, and I had more to do than I could say grace over, and, and so I just slowly but surely, I didn't make a decision. I'm done with AA. It just drifted away. And um, uh, about, I had arrived, I worked for a Fortune 5, I got my executive MBA, I went to work for a Fortune 500 company. I had uh, zoysia grass in the sprinkler system. I flew around the country talking about things that don't really matter and getting paid a lot of money to do that. So when I don't drink and put one in me, my life is going to get better, okay? I'm, my material world is going to get better. I start making I start getting attraction again in, in this realm. Uh, but I'm not working the principles of this program. You're not reminding me of these things that are so important to me. And all of a sudden, as Chuck C says, obsessions of the mind and, uh, and children of the ego begin to take root and flourish. And it be my mind and heart and body becomes their playground. And I start getting obsessed with things like girls, pornography, lying, procrastinating, um, wanting to make sure that my nice house has all the latest teak wood and stuff from Taiwan in it. And, and that way, when I, if anybody happens to come over and see it, they're all impressed. And I'm just simply not grounded in the spiritual, tool, the spiritual principles that this program is based on. And the reason I like talking about this stuff, the reason I get excited about it is because of the spiritual principles, right? I mean, when we say it's a spiritual program, it just simply means that we have spiritual principles like honesty, open-mindedness, willingness, tolerance, forgiveness, um, compassion, uh, become useful, uh, you don't have to believe in God to be, have all these things, right? This is not something, you don't have to believe in God to get sober and Alcoholics Anonymous, okay? It says that right in the book. Uh, but we do need a power greater than ourselves, and that can be a group of drunks, that can be a gift of desperation, that can be good. For me, it's always helpful to have good orderly direction. Um, I ended up going through, getting kicked out of my house with my wife. Uh, about 10 days later, I met a girl online, a Yahoo chat room. And uh, it's fine, y'all, okay? It's perfectly fine. My wife was 50, she was 24. It was love at first sight, okay? After we had seen each other about 10 days, I found out she just got out of prison. That's okay. It just, I'm just so, it's just saying that I, I was, when I, I didn't even want to, I had no desire to drink or, or use or anything like that when I was married uh, those last few years. I never would have even thought I ever would again. I would have never thought I would. But all of a sudden, I started getting reintroduced to people that did drink and then all of a sudden did use. And it just, my playmates and circle of influence started to change a little bit. It was real slow and, and, um, Grill gradual, actually, because she kind of liked it that I was sober. That was kind of a selling point, but that didn't last long. And uh, uh, I relapsed uh, in 2004. I found myself at the Electric Cowboy. She was doing some things that were really getting me balled up, and I thought it was a good idea to take a double shot of vodka, and that seemed like a good solution to me because I went back to my solution. That is my solution, okay? Changing the way I feel is my solution. Getting obliterated is my solution. I don't have to feel this way. I do not have to feel the way I feel right now. I can easily change that. I know the recipe, and there's probably some new chemicals out there that I've never tried, and we can do those too. <laughs> um, it went downhill really hard from that. And just to take a two-second step back, when I was about 12 years sober, uh, dry, Jack likes to remind me. Uh, <laughs> I read a book called Conversations with God. And this, I, I was still, ch I started really still chasing God. And I read a book called Conversations with God and something shifted inside my psyche and inside my heart. And all of a sudden, I was real disoriented. I saw that it, something came in and said, this is personal. This relationship with God is personal. This isn't something that you don't have to go through nobody else to do this. And, uh, and it was real unsettling at first, but something woke up in me that never went to sleep again, except when I relapsed for that six months right after I relapsed, it went to sleep. But after that, 
six months later, a series of events, including Merrill, which included me talking to my wife, hot smoking weed, and we start. She asked me. We never really talked about God, and so I said uh, we started talking about it a little bit. And the next day, I woke up again, and it's never gone back to sleep since. And uh, what's kind of come to me over time is what the feeling is or the communication that I get or the intuitive guidance that I have is don't take nobody else's word for God. This is personal, okay? This is between you and me. You don't, if, you, if you need a burning burn bush, we got you. Uh, it's just, anything's possible, you know. And then I started looking back on spiritual literature and all that, and that's really what it was always saying to me, you know. And so it's, it is personal. And my relationship with my Creator is extremely personal to me, and it is the most important thing in my life. And it, I'm, I've been willing to burn everything down. Even when I went back out and relapsed, it took me a number of years. I went down, and I came up, and I had a few months of, I'd have a few months of sobriety, just white-knuckle sobriety, and then I would relapse a little bit, and then a few months, maybe a year of white-knuckle, then relapse. And, uh, and it all progressed. I was picking up charges. I picked up robbery charges. I picked up... Uh, I picked up, uh, started picking up drug charges, and uh, eventually, uh, I was about uh, about five years ago, I guess. Uh, I just went all in. I, I was an IV drug user, uh, homeless. Um, um, I just was was chasing God, and 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 altered the whole the whole time. I just was going to any lengths. I never abandoned the God idea. In fact, when I relapsed, the last time I relapsed was uh, I'd been to treatment down in Florida, uh, and I remember and I had about six months sober. I wasn't going to meetings, and that's a long story about how I kind of was kept out of meetings partially. You know what I'm saying? I would keep getting redirected into four-off spots where there weren't, weren't meetings, and I didn't really have transportation. And the way I look at it is, it just wasn't my time. You know, it wasn't my time to get sober at that time. And, uh, um, but when I drank that beer, I just remember saying, I'm not going to sit around saying, I need to get sober. I need to quit drinking. I'm like, if we're drinking, it's going to be thanks for the beer. I knew I had enough AA in me to know you needed to be grateful. So I'm like, <laughs> thank you for the beer. Thank you for the cigarettes. Thank you for the uh, outside issues. It's on, you know, and it was on. I, and I had crossed paths with my sister, Amy, at the, right at that time. It was two days away from that. Me and my parents blamed her for my relapse for a while. She had relapsed. She had relapsed with 23 years sober. I relapsed with 16 years sober. And we crossed paths about two days after that. And then she and I uh, discovered a, a relationship with one another, which is truly unparalleled in my life. I mean, my sister is a twin born, eight, we're twins born eight years apart. She was eight years younger than me, so we didn't run around much as children. I mean, we have a close family, but we never spent that much time, just the two of us together. But for three or four years, we ran around together, and we were down there in the Capitol View area, and it wasn't necessarily pretty, but she and I got to rely on each other, and we became as close as a sister and brother can possibly be. And my sister ended up coming into the program uh, about uh, two months before me, and uh, Lord willing, and on the 26th of this month, she'll have three years sober. And um, so we had gotten to the point that we weren't invited to Christmas dinner or nothing like that. That was not happening. And that included my sister's son. So, no, y'all aren't coming. My mom would take me out to eat the day after or take my sister out to eat the day after. And then the next day would take, take the other ones. They wouldn't let us be together because we were Looney Tunes, you know. <laughs> there was nine, I remember about, for a nine-month period of time when I was uh, out there that last run, I, if I, I may be wrong. But I do not remember drinking a single drop of liquid that did not have alcohol in it. I would sleep about eight or ten hours a week, and I would make myself go down to do that. I was in a totally different space and time. But there were things that were happening all along the way. Still, I see that God, I'm going to just use this word. I don't really like the word God because it's got so many preconceived notions, you know what I'm saying, even for me. But I'm going to say God was working with me the whole while, even when I was out there. A lot of times we want to just shut the door on our past 
and not think about it and we were just big pieces of shit and we were sucked and I don't like that language really I'll be honest with you I don't like it when people say that in here because uh, self-loathing is what ran me to the bottle to begin with okay because it changed the fact that I couldn't stand myself I knew that I didn't add up I knew that y'all had it together and I didn't and there must be something wrong with me and I wasn't a good person and uh, so Man, I lost my train of thought. Quick. Bam. So, <laughs> so there's that. So the next chapter. Uh, um, I ended up uh, starting to get arrested a lot. So I kind of, I had an experience where, man, oh man, I'm running out of time. So I had an experience where I was kind of confronted with the, the feminine, um, the feminine face of God when I was out there. And yes, I was way out in the left field. I get it. But the point was that I was kissed by grace. That's the way I see it. I was kissed by grace and uh, I fell in love with the sacred feminine at that time. And then all of a sudden it was like she turned her red head at me and she said, you're coming home, boy. And I started getting drugged through Pulaski County Jail, okay? I started getting picked up, just picked up, picked up, picked up. Times when I never would have gotten picked up before. And uh, finally in March of 19, right before my sister went into treatment, um, they, uh, I just had a parting of the Red Sea and I just said, uh, I'm either going to have to get sober in, in prison or I'm going to have to get sober out here. And I said, I got to go get my brainwashed and I got to get back to AA. And... Uh, I mean, the the mountain started to move and Crooked Road started getting made straight. There was a sentence that I had been sh sentenced to six months for multiple shopliftings, and they commuted that sentence. Uh, my sister, other sister, uh, Laura, came in and she said, I'm trying to get you into treatment. My dad all of a sudden became willing to bond me out, which he had long since given up on doing stuff like that. My sister was having trouble getting me into treatments. She said, because you've been sober for 60-something days while you've been in jail. So she said, you could relapse. And I said, well, hell yes, we can relapse. So we got, <laughs> she got me out, and I started drinking vodka. And uh, I kind of got a wild hair like the day before they were supposed to get me ch uh, screened over there. And uh, it was late, and they were asleep, and I started chasing some outside issues. And... Thank God I didn't have very much luck, and they found me down in Capitol View sitting on the curb. My sister and her, my brother-in-law came and found me, and they, my brother-in-law said, what is wrong with you? And in a matter of words, I just say, I'm an alcoholic. This is what I do. I go change the things that make me feel the way I want to feel. That's how I live. That's what I do for a living. And... Uh, <laughs> She took me, ended up, stop. I had to stop at the house and get a couple of shots, but then she took me out to Oasis, and they said, yeah, he's definitely drunk, so he can come in here. It'll be fine. <laughs> he belongs. <laughs> so I went to Oasis, and I just honestly, I walked in there on May 31st of 2017. That was my birthday. That's my sobriety day, and I just started doing what they said. I was used to people running my life, okay? I'd been locked up for the better part of nine months, and uh, if they said, if they said write three things, I wrote three things. I showed up for the meetings. They said, go to eat at this time. I went to eat at that time. I just started doing what they said. When I was in there on the last Monday, we have Monday, there's a meeting that's brought in from the outside. And the last Monday I was there, Jack was there. As a very, Jack's only been out there a couple of three times, but he came that time. We have a mutual friend that happened to be in there with us, with me. Uh, that had relapsed and was there too. And uh, I remember they never did this, but this that one week, and we hardly ever do this today because I go out there real regularly, but they said, if you're willing to sponsor, raise your hand. And Jack raised his hand. And I had met him before because I went around introducing myself to everybody that came in from the outside. I still do that. I figure if it worked then, then it works now. I go around, I know it looks like I'm running for office or something, but I'm not trying to do that. <laughs> I just do what has always worked for me, and it's allowed me to make friends. And I'm just saying, looking around the room, I see so many people that I care about and that I've gotten to know in this program that it just amazes me that you all came out. And I know part of that is because your relationship with me, and I really, 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 really deeply appreciate that. Um, so... Um, it made me feel good to know that he would he raised his hand. That means he's on the market. Because I don't want to ask a sponsor out any more than I want to ask a girl out. <laughs> and so when I got out of uh, Oasis, I came here to the 5.30 meeting that day. And it was back in the old configuration. of, of and 
Uh, I ran it. Jack was waiting in line during the meeting to go to the bathroom, and I went over there, and I said, I need to talk to you after the meeting, and then we went outside the door that used to be right here, and I just said, Jack, I need you to be my sponsor. And he said, just like it does in the book, come on, you know, get in the car. <laughs> right, Perry? Don't ever get in the car with Jack B. unless you want to <laughs> get some good AA on you. He took me to his house. He told me a story, just like it does in the book, and he started working me through the steps. And all my brother sponsees will say, and Paul Herod's immortal word, Paul H.'s immortal words, Jackie is relentless. And he, because he cares so much, he doesn't want any gaps to form in our recovery. He says that Joe McHugh said it was like dominoes falling. Do a step and then do another one and keep doing stuff. And the way we change, and I find this out now that I'm in the behavioral health field, is by doing stuff. It's just thinking about it. I ain't going to change it. I can read that book from stem to stern. I can read a book about playing the piano all I want, but you put me behind the, up in front of the keyboard and it's going to sound like hell, okay? So I have to do the things that are in the book. And Jack ensured that I did that. When we got to the fourth step, he would always reiterate, well, we're going to step back to the third step. We got on our knees together in this house. That's weird, okay? And it's weird even when I do it with my sponsees today, but I did it the way Jack did it with me. And so that's how I do it with them. And, uh, and it's a powerful experience, really, though it is kind of weird. to be. On an, I don't really know this guy that well, and we're getting on our knees. And I've heard some people doing it in restaurants and stuff, so I've never had to do that. Um, we went, when we did the four step, he said, just write down, you're only as sick as your secrets. You're only as sick as your secrets. You're only as sick as your secrets. And so every time I would write, I ended up, he gave me the worksheets, but I wasn't moving fast enough for him. So he made me do a case history. I made him read 85 pages. So, uh, <laughs> that's what he gets for making me do a case history. And, uh, I did a thorough, thorough four step. Now, the one thing going back to the third step that I didn't realize at the time, he basically would say is that it was about turning it was about turning my thoughts and my actions over to the care of God and that was really important uh, to me and, and it's always been important to Jack because we feel I felt like it was about control and I still really didn't even get it I still didn't get it it was mostly then it was just well then just it, it's a it's an agreement just to work the rest of the steps you're just making a decision to work the rest of the steps and uh, that worked for me. What I didn't really realize at the time was that I had given up my life to the, the highest power, that I did not any longer, my life was not my own, that I didn't work for myself no more, that I worked for the, for uh, what I say, when that sounds really weird that I worked for God, you know, then I'm thinking about being on a street corner, passing out Bibles or doing some crazy stuff like that. You know, what it really means is I work for reality. Okay, that means I suit up and show up and what is put in front of me to do next, I say yes. And uh, uh, as best of my ability, unless I'm people pleasing, and then Jack informs me that I have to say no. And so I do that. And it, it, it just means that I start participating in life. And then all of a sudden life starts unfolding in ways which I did not expect. And I've come to find that I can live life on life's terms because life's terms are favorable to me, okay? It always, life always had my best interest at heart. When I was running into these jail cells and stuff, it was basically, turn boy, you're going the wrong way. That way's the way to the light, not this way. This way's to isolation. This way's to loneliness. This way's to resignation in a small life that's not worth living. And that's the way to a big, full, rich, meaningful life of sadness, joy, pain, suffering, ecstasy, pleasure, and the whole gamut of emotions. I mean, I can't just play one end of the keyboard. I got to go the whole thing. Now, I'm still working on that, okay? I, don't, I still want to, I'm averse to pain and I'm seeking pleasure, but I'm better than that than I used to be. And I can stay present with my own pain today a lot better than I used to be able to because of this program. And I can stay in the present moment more because of this program. Now that whole present moment thing, I kind of guess we'll wrap it on this. This present moment thing, now that's easier said than done, okay? We had a meeting on this the other day. Just stay in the present moment. Okay, I got worries. You know, I got things to worry about. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's fine for you to say, but my boss, I think, may just be getting ready to fire me or something. So, I mean, you stay present, but I got to wor worry about this stuff because this is going to help. But. <laughs> But as, as we start, what I've seen is that the more the wreckage of my past I clear out, 
the less I worry about the future, okay? That the future is nothing but a projection of my past. So this program is all about, as Chuck C. says, uncovering, discovering, and discarding. So it gives me a constantly a chance to be more mindful. In mindfulness, I can see my anxiety. I can see my pains. I can remember, oh, this guy that comes across my path in Kroger, man, my bust. I got to talk to you, okay? And I can make amends. I can pay my ex-wife back the alimony that I owe her. And I owe her a big chunk of money, and she's making me pay her $60 a month. And that's AA, okay, right there, because that is not anywhere near going to get her where she needs to be. But just being able to make slight, persistent effort at clearing up the wreckage of my past and then working on six and seven and take a look at my character defects. And what that just means is places where when things happen, my instincts get threatened. When, when my security instinct gets threatened, like I'm going to do my taxes, I lie. Okay, you're going to get it my money, I'm going to lie. That's what I do. So then I don't lie on purpose. And I don't want to do that. Now I'm scared because I'm not going to have enough money and what's going to happen and all this stuff. Or I don't want to pay her back. I don't think I should have to pay her back anyway. Well, i got to pay her back for being married to her? It's not right. <laughs> you pay her back. You pay her back. And as I do these things, who knows me writing a $60, getting a $60 money order to my ex-wife ends up making me feel comfortable in my own skin. Okay, now I don't worry so much. I don't have to worry if I'm going to run across her. And it's not even the specifics. It's more the imaginary people that are going to be out there and coming to take away my freedom or take away my liberties or take away my happiness or, you know, screw me over or block me in some way. It's those things start to lay down. Some of all the demons and everything that I imagined might be around. Uh, lay down and uh, I'd say the greatest thing that has happened to me one I don't know the greatest one of the greatest things there are people that could not even go to Christmas dinner or Thanksgiving dinner with their parents my sister and I were able to host our sponsees at IHOP this year at Christmas and uh, be able to buy them a, a, a breakfast and celebrate sobriety with them and let me just tell you, that could not have happened except for a place like this. So I'm really grateful to be here and sober. Thanks, y'all. <laughs>